Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. I'm very excited to be talking to you today. So your bio reads, you're interested in how to account for a firm's environment, social, and governance efforts and integrate the information into portfolio decision-making process. According to the Financial Times, your research on ESG was a turning point on how investors viewed and integrated ESG information, and the methodologies suggested in your work have been widely implemented across asset managers, and I would guess the financial industry overall. Your work is regularly cited Bloomberg, Forbes, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. You received multiple awards for your research and teaching, uh, including the uh, Best 40 Under 40 recognition from Poets and Quants and the Chair's Core Teaching Award from Kellogg, the Best Desertion Award for American Accounting Association. You earned your doctorate from Harvard and your master's and bachelor's from Northwestern. Prior to academia, you worked as an equity sales trader and research analyst at Credit Suisse. We're so excited to be talking to you today. I'm a little curious. I've got to ask you, in your youth, who or what influenced you from a business point of view or a culture or a social? Obviously, your parents were a huge influence. But I'm just curious if there were other influences you had. The Guardian family was, um, they're very good people. They were Korean Americans, you know, first generation immigrants. And basically what happened was they used to live in LA, you know, had a multiple huge Korean restaurants. They went bankrupt and then they fled to Champaign, Illinois, and they were working three, four jobs. Wow. Yeah. So they were gracious enough to you know, sort of be my guardian and sponsor. But then you can imagine that, you know, as a 13, 14 year old with a guardian family who's really struggling, you know, you never get to sort of see that because there's all, they're always working to provide for their, uh, you know, their family. Right. So, you know, in that sense, it, uh, it built a lot of character and a lot of, you know, sort of resilience. So uh, when I went to the military to serve in the Korean military uh, sometime after it was, it was a breeze, you know, <laughs> But you know, I'm very thankful to pretty much, you know, everyone sort of all the supporters that I've met over the life, you know, over my life. And I think Northwestern was somewhere that I really met a lot of supporters, uh, you know, professors and mentors, you know, as well as at Credit Suisse and at, at Harvard and back at uh, Kellogg. So it's just I think it's almost like a lifetime journey. You know, you meet people you know, throughout who are sort of willing to sort of, you know, guide you and provide you with that benefit of the doubt. And um, as an educator, I, you know, my sort of goal is to do something similar to my students. Well, I think it's really important to have mentors and have good advisors and good teachers. And there also is a certain joy in, in helping people. And one of our core values is about being of service to others as well. And I think you certainly must feel that within your profession as as teaching 
and the and just offering the research you do. Yeah, I saw in your uh, website that the clients that you pretty much started with are still with you. So that's uh, that was a, you know. Well, many have uh, one company uh, actually just exited, and they were here from the beginning thirty-eight years ago. And that was the Capital Group, and they are a large investment asset company. And um, I actually started to work with them even before I started this. And and so I've always been in corporate reporting, and I used to create their annual report and tell a story for them around each one of the different mutual funds. And so that's the work we did for, for the Capital Group. So I'm going to use this into a segue. You're kind of pioneering a new world, right? You know, I started this business in in the world of annual reports, and I kind of see that as a checkerboard. I kind of see ESG as chess, but like on a Rubik's Cube (laughs) dimension. So I'm curious, what was the problem you saw and what motivated you for your work and your research in ESG? Yes. So prior to going into graduate school at Curtis Fees, I used to trade single stocks and, you know, worked as an analyst. And, you know, our traditional financial valuation framework is effectively anchoring on accounting and financial numbers to link this firm level investment activities to value. When I was there, which was almost it's almost uh, 13 years ago now, like 10, 13 years ago, whatnot. There were talks about sustainability, CSR, or responsible investing, but people were dismissing that as fluff. They're right. like, what is this? How do you even relate to this? Nothing is reported. It must be just uh, brand management and charitable contribution. But then from a accounting and financial corporate finance 101 perspective, Currently, I teach my students that if there is a dollar input of firm resources on something, there has to be output. And that how that firm or a particular firm turns that dollar around would be different across firm characteristics like, you know, whether they have great managers or whether they have great culture or whether they care about stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. So my fundamental thesis going into graduate school, and of course, I met great, wonderful people that, you know, guided me along and worked together. But if this ESG investment is using up shareholder value and firm resources, can't we sort of uncover this link between ESG efforts or then CSR efforts and firm value? So that was sort of the big question that that shaped a lot of my research agenda. And it got shaped sort of during my time at HBS pretty much. Yeah, that makes sense. It's very interesting. And the changes, the acceleration and climate change and everything that's happened, the conversation in the last 10 years, it's interesting how that sort of converged with an existential crisis that is causing that you can't evaluate a business by just its financials anymore, that you've got to take into consideration the risks and the opportunities that this catastrophe is is offering (laughs) to us, you know? So I thought your foresight starting, you know, so long ago to just 
when it was still about dollars going out and what does that equate to, you know, has the acceleration of what has gone on is fascinating. So, you know, we did a little homework on you, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and so the work is fascinating. I want to talk about, I think it's the most current working paper, which is titled Corporate ESG News uh, Does the Market, what, what which corporate uh, ESG news does the market react to? Sure, sure. So if I can ask you just to tell us, you know, some of the key takeaways that you guys found in, in this area. Sure. So the main punchline of that paper is that yeah. market actually reacts to ESG news, but it actually reacts to positive ESG news in a positive manner. So prior to that paper, the consensus was that market reacts negatively to both positive and negative ESG news. And they, the prior papers have looked at ESG as an agency issue. So if a firm engages in ESG, it's because you know, self-motivated managers who are exploiting shareholder wealth and then doing it for their own interest. What this paper is showing is that essentially that could be true 10, 15 years ago. using sort of limited data. But what we're doing is we're using this sort of natural language process data that collects news from hundreds of thousands of sources and create a sentiment score and effectively show that the tide has turned and market reacts to positive news in a positive manner. So ESG is just like any other investment where when you have something positive, it reacts positively. When you do something negative with it, it reacts negatively. That's sort of uh, point one. And then secondly, of course, within ESG issues, there are a multitude of ESG issues, right? E, S, and G, and you you name it. But there are issues that are more closely related to your sector practices, Mm -hmm. which folks call it financially material. Right. It's anchoring on sustainability accounting standards board's definition on financial, you know, what issues are more relevant to that particular sector. And that paper or this particular paper highlights that market reacts more strongly to those issues that are closer to your sector core competence, pretty much. So, for example, if British Petroleum had a had an oil spill, the market will react to that particular thing, right? Whereas if uh, a bank like Goldman Sachs says, we care about the environment, we would like to you know, go into a lead platinum plus building, you know, that's great, but it's not like that tied to their core banking practice, right? right. So we're actively separating those and finding stronger results in issues that are closer to your sort of your business operations. Yeah. Interesting. You work with a lot of data. We work, well, you know what, I'm going to get into that in a minute. I was wondering is it just the, is there a part of the E, S, and G, it's all just what SASME's industry standards claim as the things that you should be reporting on that are, you know, material to investors, that there's not one of those categories, the E, the S, or the G, that they tend to respond to the strongest news in that category. So within this new paper, right? That's, that's, mm-hmm. what, that's what you're asking. Got it. Yes. So there are a few things to know. Let me, so let me uh, perhaps give you a little bit of a background information. So you know how we classify 
ESNG, right? These days, and ESG, you separate it to ESNG. People have different definitions as to what ESG means, right. but then broadly speaking, most people will agree that it is CSR plus G that became ESNG. <laughs> it, it, you know, broadly speaking. Yes. So what uh, in that particular paper, what we document is the following. So SASB cuts ESG not into ESNG, but into five themes. First is social capital. Second is human capital. Third is natural capital, so which is effectively your environment. Fourth is ES, uh, ESG leadership and governance. And then five is business model innovation. So what we find is that there is the strongest result in social capital issues. So you can interpret this market reaction as abnormal reaction. So market's not pricing it in. And it makes really a lot of sense because social capital especially after Black Lives Matter, it's become a thing, but it's very hard to quantify and not many people paid attention to these important issues. It's related to how ESG issues are reported. None of it is mandated, right? And then even within ESNG, G and E, it's very quantifiable. You know, how many women yeah. are in your board, how many diverse folks are in your board, et cetera. E, you know, how much emission divided by revenue. Yeah. But S is very subjective and very hard to quantify. And that's where we see the most market reaction, which is was very fascinating to me. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy and discussion about how, you know, should companies be making claims about social justice or, you know, reform or, you know, these types of things. Some people, you know, don't think that they should come out and and talk about take a side on gun reform and you know all of these these things. So I I think that's particularly fascinating. And why do you think that that may be so? Yeah. So if I mean this discussion is probably the the trillion dollar question that ESG folks are thinking about these days. And let me tell you sort of why I think so. We first have to understand why this ESG space took off. And I have my own view, and it's the following. So since the well, market's not doing so well in the past three months, yes. but since 2008, market has been going up 15 degrees line, right? Mm-hmm. Because of quantitative easing. We've been pumping in money like crazy. And when the market goes up like that, there is no room for active investment active or, or hedge, hedge funds. Well, that's why indexes are so huge. That's exactly right. So and BlackRock is so do, big. Yeah. All you really need to do is track an index and you'll make 15% a year. Yep. So that active guys obviously would charge more than the index funds, right? In terms of commission, but yes. they've been squeezed left and right. So if you look at even BlackRock, which is one of the BlackRock and Vanguard, which is one of the largest index providers, their business has shifted a lot from active to index, right? Because of this growth in index funds. Whether that will persist, we don't know, given this whole recession talks that we're, we're having. But then, so how did ESG took off is the following. In my view, these asset managers needed to sort of have a new marketing product in some sense. Because if you claim to do ESG, it's very hard to actually monitor you. This is in line with the current events of Goldman you know, getting raided, DWS getting raided by the regulators, Right. Right. And then you can, in theory, charge more or as much, right? Because it's hard to quantify, it's hard to sort of keep track of, et cetera, et cetera. 
So in that sense, it, it's a, it became a new sort of hot marketing tool and that it's a great way to attract capital because let's say you're delivering, you're tracking the index for the most part and have a little bit of active you know, stock pick on ESG, whether you can screen or whether you exercise some implementation strategies or engagement strategy. And you can effectively say to your investors, right? For example, like myself or like you, who would like to do some good, but also make 14.5% instead of 15%, which is great, right? Yeah. And say that we're, we're saving the world, we're saving the planet. So if you look at this sort of, what I'm trying to get at is the following. I think the motivation behind ESG is really wonderful. This sort of, this uh, capitalism 2.0 or stakeholder capitalism or responsible capitalism obviously is sort of what my where my heart is going and where, where I encourage my students to sort of think about. But we also have to think about what drives capital market. It's, it's money, right? It's the flow of capital. It's the you know, commissions, et cetera. So with that sort of background, what you're talking about is effectively sort of this impact versus ESG. There's a lot of talk about impact these days. Mm. And what impact folks are advocating at the broad level is the following. They're advocating that a firm should engage in GHG reduction for the benefit of the society and the societal welfare, which I think is great. But you also have to think about who are initiating these impact campaigns. They are oftentimes activist hedge funds or activist asset managers, <laughs> which their compensations also dependent on their performance as well as some impact, right? So in order to sort of get to this impact stage, which I believe will come in the, in the very near future, is first established with ESG that there is that link between shareholder value. Right, so right. once that mispricing is closed and we have a good understanding about how firms make ESG investments and what is what the return on these sustainable investments are, then I think it has to be coupled with actual follow-through impact performance, whether it is GHG reduction or providing, you know, or promoting DEI and all these things. So we're at this phase where ESG took off in the past like three years just in an exponential manner that the sustainability advocates have skipped this importance of this link between shareholder value and ESG and they're moving towards impact. That's also great. But what I'm trying to get at with my research is that there still is money left on the table, highlighting this link between ESG and shareholder value. Because ESG is a firm uh, investment activity that uses up firm resources. That's sort of my overall research thesis. I love it. Hmm. I love it. Before I build on that, I wanted just to go back and, and talk about, and I think this kind of relates to your 2016 of an article, a corporate sustainability first evidence on materiality, and materiality is huge uh, today. But there are so many uh, rating agencies, frameworks, and standards, and and there's so much conversation of consolidation of SASB and and others. Where do you see that going? And where do you think, from your point of view and all the research you've done, what's that going to look like in three years? So this is probably the, one of the hottest topics right now in yeah. the ESG space. So given that ESG area, especially ESG reporting, is there's no mandates right now. Right. This is a very, very hot topic. 
topic. Yeah. And uh, let me give you a uh, interesting uh, or what I think is interesting anecdote. When I used to uh, call clients as a sales trader, you know, major investors, right? Because Credit Suisse is, you know, arguably one of the was one of the largest prime brokers. The response uh, that I've gotten from investors, the typical response was the following. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that your you know, equity analyst came about a new EPS forecast and the rating change. How are you different from a Goldman guy who just called me three, three minutes ago and obviously uh, effectively did the same thing as your analyst? How are you guys different? Now, 12, 13, whatever years later, you talk to an investor, you talk to an investor and they, their, their response on ESG is the following. Oh my God, ESG is so confusing. We don't know how to make sense of it. They're everywhere. Their correlation is really low. We have no idea how to do it, but we're calling ourselves an ESG fund and we have to charge clients X amount. So that's the state of the world that we live in, right? Yes. So then I think where there is opportunity is the following. So I also have a recent paper uh, with uh, my good colleague and friend George Serafim at HBS titled uh, "Stock Price Disagreement." You know, uh, a stock price disagreement paper. It's titled uh, "Stock Market," or I can't even think of the actual title right now. <laughs> but anyhow, it's a disagreement paper, and it takes advantage of the ESG rating disagreement. It proposes a trading strategy where you can benefit from this disagreement. <laughs> So I think what asset managers and investors need to think about is in light of disagreement in ESG rating, yes. in light of this unregulated space, how can I uncover this value? Because at the end of the day, that's sort of what the goal of these ratings are, right? But then if you think about, and the innovation of that particular paper is that it was the first one to bother testing different ESG ratings and whether they have any predictive ability of future ESG news. Mm-hmm. So to date, uh, before that paper, no one has even bothered to test ESG ratings performance on a future ESG outcome. So we're obviously in a very nascent stage, right? Yeah. These are, I think, very interesting areas. Yeah. So, you know, you touched on this and and let's, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this. You know, we believe in today's world, companies have a, a responsibility to all stakeholders and not just Milton Friedman's. Uh, uh, one of his theories is this: he said, there's, 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 only, there's one and only social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage activities designed to increase its profits as long as they stay within the rules of the game. And, and he was just speaking about shareholders. So the world's evolving. The world is always evolving for, for good or for bad, or both at the same time, actually, you know, evolving good and bad. But this whole notion around stakeholder capitalism, what's your insights to that? Uh, I know that a lot of the investment community you deal with are pretty hardcore people, but there's a lot of younger 30-somethings out there that have a whole different value set and that will be investing in or are investing uh, today. In intangibles. Absolutely. So if you look at, um, for example, AQR's ESG fund and their prospectus, they're very forthcoming. They would, it's something in the lines of, obviously I don't have the actual prospectus in front of me, but it's something mm-hmm. in the lines of, hey, we're an ESG fund we would have to sacrifice a little bit of shareholder value. 
to identify, you know, and then bring about impact. Where I'm trying to go with this is the following. I think asset management community, at the end of the day, will have to cater to their clients, which could be 30-year-old millennials or 25-year-old millennials, right? In addition to everyone, right? So I believe that there will be products and we're in this, we're in this sort of in-between phase of a lot of this information not being regulated, right? But then there will be more scrutiny from the regulators. There will be more scrutiny from asset allocators. It could be you and me or a pension fund, for example. And I, I do believe that this stakeholder capitalism is the direction that is something that we cannot ignore. But at the same time, you know, I would argue that people sort of classify Milton Friedman as, oh, this old person who sort of only advocates for shareholder value. But I think if you read um, his sort of arguments, it's slightly nuanced in the sense that what he's arguing and what I believe that he's arguing and what I think that ought to be done is you need to first be able to create shareholder value, whether it is short-term or long-term, in order to create value for stakeholders. Right. You know, my interactions with um, the C-suite, their complaint is, number one, oh, my God, how do I make sense of the ESG rate? Right. But then second is, you know, they're thinking about they ask me sometimes, you know, should I be divesting one of my subsidiaries because it's oil and gas heavy? But I don't know whether that's the right way for firm managers to think about. Right. It's to sort of. How do you create value using your own existing resources? How do you sort of prepare your stranded assets in a way to gear towards regulatory changes and then uh, phase out in a way that is sustainable and then it creates long-term value? And a lot of things are necessary, obviously. You need you know, CEOs who are capable. You need board members who are willing to sort of sacrifice short-term cash outflows with long-term value creation and remove these sort of agency frictions and um, you know free riding issues. So there's a lot of things that you need, but at the end of the day, I think, at least in the US, right? It, the yeah. goal of firms is to sort of create shareholder value that in turn could create stakeholder value. So I do for sure think the stakeholder value creation is very important, but I think it would have to happen alongside of shareholder value creation. Yeah, alongside of that, and we work with a lot of corporations, right? We're a corporate brand agency. And part of our philosophy is a company's core beliefs, uh, values, and the behaviors, actions, decisions, mindset associated with that. Sense of purpose. I know purpose is a big word. These drive certain behaviors when done right within a corporation. I was just curious what what have you seen about a company's values and ethics and their possible influence on ESG strategies? So my experience with my limited interaction with, you know, the C-suite is yeah. that everyone that I meet claims that they're number one in ESG. They care about <laughs> ESG. They have all these, you know, reports, what? which is, you know, and, and, you know, whenever I show them this uh, returns graph, that I typically show, you know, based on my research, a lot of, you know, CEOs or CFOs jokingly say that, oh, that my group must be in that high group where you generate a lot of return or my firm. Right? Yeah. I, I believe that, and this is related to stakeholder capitalism in some sense. Mm-hmm. I believe that um, the, 
company sort of being able to manage their employees, for example, especially in B2C settings, companies were able to manage your supply chain and you know all these stakeholders, that's a very strong signal, great ESG practice, as well as ESG being generating shareholder value. Yeah. And I do think that given that ESG is oftentimes toned from the top, because it's usually at least of course, there is this grassroots movement from, you know, like lower level, you know, junior level employees caring about the environment and all these things. But oftentimes, up until, you know, this year, I think most of ESG pressure is coming from investors, mm-hmm. which are getting pressure from asset allocators. Right. So asset allocators pressuring asset managers and then them in turn pressuring uh, companies to think about these issues. Right. So from in that sense, this. Purpose, I think, is a great word because this purpose and culture and the trust within organization and within boardroom, in addition to sort of how CEOs interact with directors, directly trickles down to, you know, how they treat their employees, you know, how employees face customers, you know, how customers feel about that brand, right? It's almost like a very positive loop. Yep. And I think that's where this long-term shareholder, you know, stakeholder value creation happens. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think that that circle, you know, when there's not alignment from the top and how they, you know, their policies and procedures being in line with how they truly treat employees, rubber hitting the ground, is when you have that discretionary effort of anyone in the company not being there and creating value. So I have a paper called Can High-Ability Managers Choose ESG Projects and Enhance Shareholder Value? And effectively, how I measure high-ability managers is from employee satisfaction score from Glassdoor. Or from what? Glassdoor. Glassdoor, yes. Yeah, glassdoor.com. So what I find is that when firms engage in ESG and they have employee buy-in, yes, that's where the value creation is coming from. And it's especially strong in consumer discretionary sector. It makes total sense, right? Because how you treat your employees, oh, yeah. it trickles all the way down to customers, right? That's why we're focused so much on core beliefs. You know, What's in your heart and soul as an individual, but as a collective? And you have to have a set of beliefs and you have to find the people Attract the people that believe in what you believe, employees, customers, investors. And when that alignment happens, it can be very powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Terrific. Wow. This has been so enlightening. So happy to be talking to you and understanding all the research and work that you've done. I think this is going to give our listeners kind of a, a peek behind the curtain and a different a different point of view and perspective on this. Yeah. Thanks for thinking of me. Yeah. appreciate you doing this. Great, Aaron. Great. Thank Thank you you so so much much for your time. Thank you. Stay safe. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. 
See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.